Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by LitBreaker. It's an online advertising network for book people. If you want to reach book people on the internet, go to litbreaker.com and find out how you can reach book people on the internet at litbreaker.com. LitBreaker is an online advertising network. It's a big collection of literary sites. You can advertise on all of the sites at once. You can advertise on the full network or you can pick the sites you want and do it piecemeal. It's very user-friendly. Litbreaker.com. For more information, Litbreaker, it's an online advertising network for book people. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host... Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. This is it. This right. is Other People. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening to the program. My guest today is Lindsay Lee Johnson. Her debut novel is called The Most Dangerous Place on Earth. It's out there now from Random House. It is sure to be one of the most acclaimed debut novels of the year. I can't imagine uh, that there will be too many more debuts that get this kind of uh, celebrated response. So very pleased to have her here. I should mention in the name of full disclosure that Lindsay is my wife's second cousin. If I'm doing that math right, Lindsay's mother and my mother-in-law are cousins, uh, first cousins, which I believe makes my wife and Lindsay second cousins. So she and I talk about that. You're going to hear that in just a moment, my conversation with Lindsay Lee Johnson. Otherwise, uh, what is happening here this week. It's been busy. I just finished uh, another revision of my novel. I've been working on it with my agent. Finished it up uh, yesterday, sent it over, and it looks like it looks like I might be done, or at least done in the sense that my agent is going to take the novel out uh, to market in early February. So uh, that's happening. I'm not nervous at all. It's fine. I'm not nervous at all. Everything's fine. Be interested to see how it pans out. You know, it's this, uh, I just wanted to have that feeling of having taken it through every pace. I wanted to have the feeling that I did everything I possibly could. And I think I've done that. 
At the same time, it's impossible if you really start to nitpick it to ever feel like you did absolutely everything because at some point you just have to let it go. You have to step away. Like, what is it? Works of art are never finished. They're just abandoned. Like at some point you have to abandon the thing. I think that's the point I'm at now. Not that I won't have another crack. You know, if the, if this thing, uh, you know, if somebody acquires it, it's going to get published. You have another couple of opportunities to edit the book. Obviously you'll be working with an editor and so on, but at this stage of the game, I have to step away, relinquish control, sit at my desk and stare at my telephone. I got a great response to last week's episode, my conversation with Roxanne Gay. I got a letter from a listener named David who writes, Dear Brad, love the show. I've been a fan for a couple of years now. Enjoyed your most recent episode with Roxanne Gay more than I expected to, but her words at the very start of the episode were troubling. And uh, I'll interrupt here. You know, rather than read David's transcription of the part of the episode that troubled him, I figured I would just play it for you. Doesn't that make more sense? So let me play the audio in question, and then I'll get back to the rest of David's letter. So here is Roxanne Gay. I understand sort of the kind of white man's burden that a lot of men feel like, where they feel compelled to say, not all men. I get where they're coming from. But at the same time, when you look at the world and the state of the world, and you look at the news and the things that men do, it's like, you guys aren't helping yourselves. No. And no, it's not all men by any stretch of the imagination, but it's enough men that we have to have these conversations. All right. So let's uh, continue with David's letter. He says, I know it's now hip in so many circles to denigrate men as often as possible, and that defending men in any remotely ardent way automatically gets one labeled a Trumpian knuckle dragger. But imagine if the word men were replaced with blacks, immigrants, Muslims, etc., Roxane Gay and other similar writers and thinkers would be the first to blow whistles at this kind of generalization. But when it's about men, specifically white men, there's no issue. They're for some reason allowed to pass judgment while others cannot. They're the gatekeepers of who is good and bad. It's troubling. Roxane Gay seems like a really cool and smart woman, but perpetuating this kind of stuff shuts out a lot of potential readers. And I think it contributes to the current rise of fascistic, reactionary, knee-jerk politics and discourse. Roxanne Gay and others were really about conversation. They would start by engaging, not dismissing the people they feel entitled to call bad. Best, David. So thanks, David, uh, for listening and for taking the time to write. I appreciate hearing from you. Did Roxanne Gay call white men bad? I don't know if I heard that, in the, at least not in that clip. Uh, I don't think that's what she's saying. I just think we have to have a conversation about, uh, you know, the, the fact that white men are in a position of privilege and power writ large in our culture and in our society and in our world, the way it is presently constructed. I think that's sort of the argument and these generalizations. I mean, I, I mentioned this in the interview with Roxanne. There are, I can at times feel that, that sense of like embarrassment of being a white man. I can feel uh, a desire to defend myself. You know, like, hey, listen, we're not all bad. You know, like having, like, I think it's human to want to say that. It's not my fault I'm a white dude. It's how I was born. But the, the reality is that white men in our society enjoy a high level of privilege and power economically, politically. So it's not the same. You know, women and people of color 
are not do, do not enjoy broadly speaking the same level of privilege and power i think that's the key difference uh, so i'm willing to tolerate uh, a degree of generalization that i'm not willing to tolerate when it comes to white men that i'm not willing to tolerate in other uh, areas it's just my feeling and i mean look at it look at the way uh White men have screwed things up <laughs> in our world, running countries, running businesses, dumping poison in the river, whatever the case may be. But men in general, you know, testosterone. It's hard to talk about all this stuff. Just try to be on, like, you know, you want to be honest, but you have to also be artful. And, uh, I think it's like, uh, it's communication so difficult, but so central to so much of what ails the world, the way we speak, the words we choose to use, the way we listen, how we respond to what we're hearing, how we perceive what we're hearing. Are we offended? Do we crack back? Do we have compassion? Do we respond in anger? It's not, it's no easy feat, micro or macro, but I think it's at the core of it. And I guess if you're like me, the answer is try to be offended as little as possible. And whenever there's an issue, involving any kind of controversy claim to be on every side of the issue. <laughs> okay. I can see everything. Okay. I get it on the one hand. Yeah. I, I always do that. I always talk about how I'm of two minds on things. The truth is that I'm often of like five minds, but generally speaking on this issue, white men are in a unique position of privilege and power in the world and are often causing trouble. Men in general, we're beasts. Not that women are, are saints either. <laughs> you know, maybe it's just about power. Maybe if we, like we, if we flip this and the overwhelming majority of, of power positions in this world were run by women, would it really be better? That's sort of like the common liberal dictum. If you just gave women power, everything would be better and there'd be more sharing and communication would be more open and you know, all that kind of stuff. You hear these arguments made, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's true. Hopefully it is. Hopefully we'll get to see it in action someday, but I'm, I'm suspicious. I sort of wonder if it's just power period and you know, power attracts a certain kind of person, male or female. If you want to be president and if you think you should be president, male or female, you're a different kind of cat. Did you guys hear that dog bark right after I said cat? <laughs> it's kind of perfect. And every once in a while you have a really decent, good person wind up in a position of power that can happen too, whether it's in business or politics or whatever, but power corrupts.
and communication is critical. So thank you, David, for writing, for listening to the program. Appreciate it. If anybody out there would like to write to me, the, the address is letters at other PPL.com. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is Lindsay Lee Johnson. Her debut novel is called The Most Dangerous Place on Earth. It is out there now from Random House. Here she is, folks. This is Lindsay Lee Johnson. You are what? My, my wife's first cousin once removed. This is the first <laughs> is time I've ever... Is that it? I think so, right? Because your mother and my wife's mother are cousins. Yes. And I learned... like I always thought that like if my mom's cousin... I always thought like my mom's cousin was my second cousin, but it's actually your mother's cousin is your first cousin once removed, right? So what's your second cousin? Then maybe that maybe you are your cousin's child. Maybe you are her second cousin. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's confusing, but I was telling somebody um, last night how I met you. Do you remember how we met? Do we meet at USC? We met at USC because yeah. you came to speak because we're both USC MPW grads. Right. R.I.P. The dear departed <laughs> MPW. Yeah. Um, but you came to speak and give an, you know, like alumni inspiration talk. Well, and I met you. That was bleak. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just crushed everybody. Not at all. Not at all. Um, and then the next day, my mom was in town and she said, oh, we're going to your cousin Carrie's wedding reception. And I hadn't seen Carrie in a long time, so I didn't know about you. And we show up at the reception, and you're the groom. No way. You, it was the I wildest mean, I, no. thing. It was literally the next day. Wow. Because like, I remember going and giving that speech and like talking to you guys. And I remember uh, you in particular had a book or you, know, you, you had thoughts about a book involving cheerleading. Right. And I remember like, uh, I remember that and I remember talking to you about that. And then I guess, was it the really hot wedding reception where it was like, like 110 yes. degrees? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my God. Yeah. That was, was lovely. It was almost great. 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, but you know, I was going to ask you about that because you know, that's the only time I've ever talked to you about your creative work was that discussion. And you know, it's, there is a through line. Even back then you were thinking of kind of YA themes or the high school experience. I mean, that's what cheerleading was right i mean was yeah that... i mean i wouldn't call it ya because i think that ya has quite a different tone than my work uh, my work is a lot darker for example it's yeah. not, as, not as hopeful um do you, what but... do you think because like that's like it's interesting like categorizations like I, I know that sometimes um 
women writers bristle at, for instance, getting like labeled like chick lit. Yeah. And like, does YA, is that like a pejorative term to you? It's, it's not a pejorative. It's just not, wasn't my intention. And when I was trying to sell the book and even when I was just workshopping the book in my like local writing classes, um, there was just a lot of confusion about that. And th what bothered me about it was that people thought, well, it's about teenagers. So the only people who'd be interested in reading that would be teenagers. Right. I don't agree. Like I well, think yeah. there, there are so many adults, my wife included, who love to read, you know, YA or t books with teenage characters or books that are like set at a boarding school or something right. like bad shit happens like at a boarding like school <laughs> prep and yes, yeah, yes. And secret history, all that example. stuff. Yeah. yeah. But th there are, you know, that's the thing about labels is that they really, um, I don't know. They're, they're too broad a lot of the time and yeah. they don't allow for the kinds of, uh, individuality that a, a writer might be going for, you know, and, and right. usually is going for in their work. Right. And I, I hope that teenagers will read this, maybe older teenagers, um, because it's not all, you know, quote unquote appropriate, but I really want adults to read it because I want them to learn how to empathize with contemporary teenagers Yeah, because I think the way that we talk about teenagers in this culture is pretty derogatory and unfair in a lot of cases. And I think there's a real misunderstanding about contemporary teenagers. What's so, the misunderstanding? Well, I think, I think we, it's our view of teenagers is colored by two main things. One, well, maybe three, one is our own ex memories of high school, right? Where it felt like, it felt like everyone else had everything figured out and like, I was the weird weirdo, you know, and I think everyone feels that way. Like you look around in your high school or you, when you remember high school, you're like, oh, well, there were the popular kids and they seemed to be doing great. And then there were the really smart kids and they seemed to be doing great. And there were the jocks and that's who they were. But I was very complicated and I couldn't be put into a category, right? Because nobody puts himself into a category. Um, so that's one view. I think our own memories. And then, um, you also have all these movies and TV shows like, you know, breakfast club, it's actually a really good one, but you know, gossip girl. And like when I was growing up, it was all these, like, like don't tell mom, the babysitter's dead and like saved by the <laughs> bell. And, you know, there were all these shows where it's like, well, that's the cheerleader and that's the nerd. And like, does any, was anyone, was anyone actually having that experience in high school? Well, once again, like the, you know, just sort of the, uh, the fallacy of labels or the way that they fall short in, in really defining something, you know, it's right, a, it's a right. narrow, it's a narrow way exactly. to look at things. And when you see teenagers, like if you see them in a big group, sometimes you do think you're seeing those stereotypes like, well, that's the baseball player jock kid. Um, and that's the science loving nerd girl. Um, but then if you actually talk to one of those kids for any amount of time, you, you'll discover all these layers of experience that they have and, and different interests that they have. And I mean, they're people, right. they're complicated. Well, and that's the, but the thing too, you know, it's, it's so funny because we all, if we get to a certain age, have lived through the high school experience mm -hmm. and then you start to get older and the further, you know, the, the farther away you get from that, if you're not spending time around teenagers, mm -hmm. you do lose touch. Yeah, of course. And my memory is not great. Like I'll forget, like, I don't remember anything from high school. <laughs> like some people, like, I feel like there are, there are people who remember vividly their childhood yeah. in ways that I just do not. Oh really? Yeah. Like it's gone. I have no oh, idea. No. <laughs> I'm kind of glad. You <laughs> should have written a memoir already. I should have. had it all down. I mean, maybe I could dredge it up and, and you know, there are scenes I probably hang on to more than I think, but it's just not right there at the surface for me. Yeah. Uh, did you have a really vivid 
teenage experience? Was it something that was like very powerful to you that you, you know, you're still kind of grappling with or that you were grappling with in the composition of this book? I think so. Um, and I also had, um, a really interesting experience of being a teenager growing up in Marin County, California. And I lived, you know, in the same house in the same town for 18 years. And then I left for about 10 years and I lived in different cities around the country. And then, um, my life, which cities, uh, I lived in Chicago, New York, um, and, uh, LA. Okay. And then I came back because my life fell apart <laughs> and moved back in with my parents. It was 2008 economy crashes. I had just bought a house. Uh, my long-term boyfriend walked out the door. Huh. It was just everything. Like I lost my job, everything that I, th I thought I had my life all together and it all just fell apart. The cheerleading book was almost maybe going to get into the marketplace and then didn't. So literally everything that could go wrong, went wrong for me in those like six month period. And I was really lucky because my parents said I could come back and, and live with them again in my childhood bedroom. And I was looking for jobs and I wanted to teach in college cause that's what I had been doing. I taught at USC when I was a, a master's student there and there were no jobs cause no one, I mean, it was 2008, no one was hiring, but there was a tutoring center that was down the street from my old high school. So that was the job that I took. And, uh, so I had this experience where I, I got to tutor and work with kids who were having the same experience that I had had 10 years prior. So that will really allowed me to, to remember a lot yeah. and also to see things in, in a new light. Well, let me ask you this, the cheerleading book that, you know, almost was, mm -hmm. um, at, le at least similar age ranges in terms of the characters, correct? Yeah. Th so that was really, so it was called, I was a rebel cheerleader. Um, and the reason it was called that was that, so I grew up in Marin and is a very progressive place and, and feminist values are really important. And my parents are, are very strong feminists. For example, like I wasn't allowed to have like a play kitchen when I was a kid. Someone bought one for us and my parents made us exchange it for a train. You know, it was like, <laughs> I wasn't allowed to have a pink bedroom. They were very, they really wanted a gender neutral, um, you know, childhood for me and my sister. And you think it was a good thing? Yeah. I, I, well, I do. I'm going to go take all my daughter's dolls and throw them in the garbage. Oh, but oh, see, no, here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. I totally, I rebelled. I rebelled. I loved dolls. I loved, you know, princess movies. I loved all that stuff. And I just kind of, some of it really is innate. And like my yeah. son, like you see, he sees the garbage truck and he freaks out. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm like, that's how I was when I like yeah. some of that stuff just hardwired. Well, my big sister was a real tomboy and she has never liked dolls or, you know, traditional girly things. So I think when I came along, they were just kind of like, who are you? Yeah. Where did you come from? <laughs> um, and anyway, when I was in second grade, my friend Jenny joined the local youth cheerleading squad. And yes, there are second grade cheerleading squads. I, I, I was not aware. Oh, they, I think you, I think your daughter could be in one right now if she wanted wow. to. I mean, yeah. they start very young. Um, and I begged my mom, can I, I want to do cheerleading with Jenny. Look, she gets to wear this cute outfit. She has these pom-poms and it's dancing. <laughs> like this is the best thing ever. And my mom said, absolutely not. That is degrading. That is sexist. You're not doing that. You can play soccer or little league. And I went to soccer in Little League and I refused to ever go back. It was like, it just wasn't me. It wasn't me. I, I wanted to be a cheerleader. I can't even tell you. I don't even know how much it was just 
the more they said no, the more I wanted it. Sure. Or how much was just innate in me that I was just drawn to it. Um, so anyway, I ended up talking her into it and I got on the squad and then I was a cheerleader for 10 years and in high school, I ended up being the captain of the cheerleading squad. So, um, it wasn't just my parents. It was the whole community that sort of disdained this activity. So people would kind of judge me when I would walk around town and my, you know, if I was wearing my cheerleading uniform, people would talk to me like I was an idiot, you know, like not necessarily rudely, but like, oh, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Just in the, in the ways of Marin County, I can just picture because <laughs> it really is Marin County uh, figures largely into your book, almost like as a character. Yeah, uh, it's a place you know intimately, and it's also a very fascinating place because it really is like this confluence of like ultra beauty, like the physical yeah. landscape yeah. of it, ultra wealth. Yeah, um, people of um, enormous privilege, like access to San Francisco mm-hmm. and uh, Silicon Valley, and you know all that it entails. But it's a pretty uh, elite community, and it um, it has kind of everything. It's kind of a dreamy place from the outside looking in. It has everything, but so somebody asked me like, why, why Marin specifically, other than the fact that I grew up there and I know it better than anywhere else. And I think it's such an interesting place because it's, uh, because it does appear to have everything. It is extremely privileged, extremely white. Uh, you know, everyone there has a, not everyone, but most people there have a Mercedes or a BMW Tesla. Tesla. <laughs> I mean, most kids at the high school, if you look at the high school, at the parking lot of the high school, it's brand new SUVs and luxury cars. Um, so on the one hand, there's that on the other hand, it has these very like hippie roots and you know, it has a theme song. Do you know what's the, I read it. So Rita Abrams in her fourth grade class in the seventies, um, wrote this theme song for mill Valley. And actually it was like a nationwide radio hit. And, um, Francis Ford Coppola directed a music video for it, no kidding. which you can find on YouTube. And I highly recommend it's all these little hippie kids in mill Valley in the seventies, singing the song with their teacher uh. playing. She's playing the guitar and she has pigtails and it's like everyone's dancing in the town <laughs> square and there's like shirtless men walking by. I mean, so it's, it's, it's a very hippie progressive place and it's incredibly wealthy. Yeah. It's so, like a, that weird collision of like counterculture and, uh, exactly. capitalism and right. And when you're growing up there, you're always being reminded of how privileged you are. You know, teachers are always telling you how privileged you are. So it's not a community that is just unabashedly, you know, these aren't a bunch of, you know, not to bring in politics, but these aren't a bunch of like Trump voters who are just, unabashedly we're rich and screw everybody else. These are people who really actually care about social values and, um, feel a little little guilty for being so rich. I think so. (laughs) Yeah. Diversity. Uh You know, my school had a, you know, um, a black student union and a, um, a national organization for women branch in the school <laughs> and it had, it had know, a national uh, or had a black, uh, student union it did. for like the two black kids in school. Well, yeah, um, <laughs> no, there were black kids in my school. Oh, there were. Um, but yeah, but so, well, this is sort of a weird sideline, but my high school draws students from mill Valley, which is like 99% white and also Marin city, yeah, which Marin is, city's where like Tupac is from, right? It's where Tupac. Yeah. He went to my high school oh, and we're all extremely proud of that. I'm yeah. sure he would be really a big friend of mine. If he were, <laughs> he would just love me. He would have loved your book he for sure. Have, oh, definitely. <laughs> um, oh, we were all huge Tupac fans back in the day, but, yeah. um, yeah. So they get bust in. 
Gotcha. Um, but you know, we would go to, they would do rallies and we'd go to the rallies. And like when I was a freshman, they don't, they didn't teach, um, history. They taught contemporary social issues. So we would have like, for instance, um, gay and lesbian members of the community would come in and speak to us about their lives. And I mean, it was wonderful. I'm so glad I had that experience. I think everyone, our world would be a much kinder, gentler place. So you feel, I mean, you feel for all of its, uh, for all of its ills, you know, cause there are, there is a dark side and there are, you know, it's a fault. There's faults in every place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you've, you've kind of, uh, x-rayed it pretty well in the book. <laughs> the book addresses this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but do you feel for, you feel fortunate for having grown up there? I do. And I like do. the positives outweigh the negatives. For me, they did. For you, they for did. me, they did. For everybody else, maybe not, but yeah. for me, they did. Um, so but you... it was like I said, it was confusing. I like I had an interaction. There's a book I, I used it in the book with a teacher. A teacher once said to me, "Well, I think I was 14." She said, "Well, why do you think you get to live here and another kid gets to, has to live in Rwanda? Why are you here and that <laughs> child is over there?" And I understand now as an adult, what point she was trying to make. But at the time I just did not understand at all. I just looked at her and I think I said like, like my parents live here. I think <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. why. And I also had this sort of defensive feeling like you don't know anything about my life. Right. What you see is that I appear to be a blonde, happy child with nice parents and I live in a nice town, but you don't know what my home life is like. You don't know what experiences I've had with friends. You don't know my innermost feelings. You don't know if I've had, um, struggles with depression or, I mean, you know, you don't know who I am. You're making this judgment based on what you see. So that's what I see a lot going on with teenagers, especially privileged teenagers. So, okay. So you, um, grow up in mill Valley birth through when you leave for college, then you yeah. start to move around. You write this cheerleader book and it almost goes to market, but then doesn't the economy crashes, your life crashes. <laughs> um, you come back and then you take this job tutoring and suddenly you're interfacing with kind of your former self, like kids yeah. from your hometown mm-hmm. who probably go to your high school, or at least some of them go to your high school. Uh, and obviously that experience informed, at least to some extent, the writing of your novel, um, The Most Dangerous Place on Earth. Mm-hmm. And I guess the question is, did the experience of like getting to actually interface with these kids, it must have deepened your understanding of character. It must have given you a lot of insights and experiences and just, you know, jarred your memory, made you see things differently reminded you like given it a measure of depth that then carried over into the writing of the book so that was there something lacking in the cheerleader book that you feel exists in the most dangerous place on earth yeah and there's like it you you summarized my life very well but there are also before the cheerleader book i had written i think four other novel manuscripts oh wow um i had finished my first novel when i was 23 or 24 um i mean i was very ambitious Gung ho. and I only wanted to write novels. I didn't want to write short stories really. Um, so uh, there had been many attempts and failures and many years of me just writing on my own and trying to just trying to write a story. And, um, actually last night I did an event at book soup with Seth Greenland of, um, the LA review of books. And he was sort of my mentor and it, he was talking He's about been how, on this show. 
Isn't he awesome? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's great. And he was talking about all those years he would read my manuscripts. I don't know why he did this. He just was nice. But he would read them and he would say, God, like this is a beautiful description of like light coming through a window, but nothing is happening in this book. Like I've just read 200 pages of people sitting in a room staring at each other, you know, and then like one person like turns their head and then the other one coughs and then, you know, they leave, you know, and I just, I did not understand story. I knew that I loved language. I was obsessed with the modernists. I love Virginia Woolf and I just wanted to write beautiful sentences. And, but I, I didn't really know what I wanted to say. So I think all those early drafts for me, just trying to figure out what do I actually want? want to say, and how can I actually tell a story? How can I not just be so interior, but write something that's for someone else to read? It took me, I mean, maybe that's just part of growing up. It took me a while to make that transition. And what the tutoring did was it took me out of myself and it made me very invested in other people's stories and other people's successes. I mean, I, I stopped thinking about my own life and how, you know, fucked up it was. And I started just caring about helping these kids in their lives and what they needed. And, you know, da da, I developed empathy. And, um, I, I think that had a very big impact on this book because when I sat down to write the most dangerous place on earth, I had this energy within me. I had this, I had this mission that I wanted these kids voices to be heard. I just felt like I had glimpsed the humanity in these uh, teenagers that most adults don't really get to see because I had spent so many hours just sitting in rooms with them and just listening to them talk. And because I, I and wasn't not just tutoring, but like actually hanging out with them a little bit and getting to know them. Oh yeah. Cause the tutoring center um, was, it wasn't like a very, like a corporate strict tutoring center. It was a local. It's Marin. It was Marin. It was like drum circles. It would, exactly. <laughs> totally. We would cleanse auras. Um, that actually in an English class once in, when I was in high school, we had to cleanse each other's auras. Of course. That, was, that stuck with me. How could you possibly I mean, study Shakespeare if your aura is dirty? Yeah. There wasn't as much Shakespeare yeah. studying as much as, yeah. We read Richard Brodigan too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of catching up to do when I got to college and major in English, right. <laughs> um, but where was I going with this? Just getting the inside uh, and, and yeah. you know, then like, that's a really powerful thing you said though, is that getting outside of yourself, not being so interior, developing empathy, having your life be about something more than just your own creative ambitions mm-hmm. or interior dramas or whatever. Yeah. So it's like a good lesson. It's an easy lesson to forget. And it's like, uh, I don't know. It's, it never hurts to hear that and to be reminded of the power of that. Yeah. It's so obvious, but yeah, I really, it took me a long time to really get that. I think because too, I knew at such a young age that I wanted to be a writer. I mean, I knew from age, I don't know, seven, very young that I was going to write novels. Just a cheerleader novelist. That was, well, that was the thing. I was a cheerleader, but I also was obsessed with books. I read all the time. I was actually really shy. Um, you know, in high school, I also was the editor of the newspaper. So I was really nerdy in my regular life. That's why it was so funny that people treated me like an idiot when I was wearing my cheerleading (laughs) uniform. Do you know how clean my aura is? Do you have (laughs) any idea? Yeah. I'm like, I'm, I would be over in the corner reading Jane Eyre if I weren't wearing this uniform. Anyway, I was very nerdy. Um, and, uh, 
yeah, that was encouraged by my parents very much so. But anyway, growing up, knowing that was what I wanted and having this feedback from teachers, you know, when you're like 10 and you're really good at like describing a flower, everyone just loves you. Right. Yeah. It's like, Oh wow. Oh, Lindsay. Oh, you must be a genius. Oh, <laughs> you're a writer, you know, cause they want to encourage you. But what that does is it, it sort of plants this little seed of ambition, which is good, but also can be dangerous because if it becomes too much, just about you and you falling in love with your own sentences, then why would anyone else be interested? In well, this that? is the psychology. I mean, I think about this as a parent a lot is that you shouldn't praise like a lot of parents, you know, they're, I guess like the, right now the thinking is that if you tell your kids, they're the greatest, or if you tell kids under your tutelage or whatever, that right. they're the greatest. Right. Um, and you use kind of superlatives and you overdo it mm -hmm. like from a good place. It's coming from a good place. Sure. You want to make them feel good. You actually set them up to be sort of devastated when things don't go right. Right. And so instead of praising them in that way, you're supposed to praise effort. Like, yeah. Oh, you tried hard. You failed, but you tried hard. I'm really proud. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. That makes some sense to me. I think it does. And actually, so my husband is a um, surgical resident Okay. and he's just like a brilliant guy. I mean, he's naturally very smart and he's been very successful in his life, but he's so, he was raised with the, oh good. You tried hard mentality, like very humble. He was raised in Iowa. Uh -huh. So living with him has been very instructive because I'll say things like, well, I'm not, I've just always naturally been good at writing, but like, I'm terrible at math. I can't do math. And he'll just say, well, that's ridiculous. How do you, if you tried, you could learn, you know, <laughs> he's just, and he'll say, well, I'm not naturally very smart, but I just work hard. I study a lot. It's like, it's such a nice attitude to have. I wish I had like pragmatic. Yeah. It's, one it's foot not in front of emotional. The other. And I think that's as a writer, that's kind of what I'm striving for is just to look at it as a job and not some kind of like magic inborn, like fairy dust dream thing, right. which I think often it feels like when you're first starting out, like actually it's a vocation and, um, that that's good. That's good news Yeah, because you can just keep working. Just show up. Yeah. It's hard to show up, but like once you get into that rhythm and if you can, you know, if you have the life where you can carve out the time, mm -hmm. um, which I, I've, my whole life has been oriented around trying to write novels and find that time. I, well, I was making that time. I, I, I would not take a job that interfered with that. It was the, to the detriment of my bank account of course, yeah. and making, made my parents very nervous for many years. Um, because I just, I could have, you know, there was a lot of like, you know, you're, you're at a cocktail party and you're like, Oh, what do you do? I'm like, well, you write, Oh, I write novels. Oh, are you published? Well, not yet. I'm working on it. Oh, like, you know what a, is a good career for, for writers? Um, advertising, yeah. you know, like what if you, maybe you should go be an English teacher in high school, you know, or whatever. People like give you all these other ideas because it seems like such a pie in the sky dream to, to be a novelist. But I just, I knew that novelists existed. I knew that there were people They're real, yeah, who did it professionally. And I would go to readings. I mean, my whole life I've been going to readings all the time and buying people's books and going to the bookstore and seeing what's out and seeing what's being published and observing my professors and just convincing myself and reminding myself that it's a real thing. Yeah. Um, but it's hard work, you know, I yep. mean, it's not as hard as coal mining, but it's, 
It's different. It's work. It's, it's not physical manual labor. You know, it's not physically taxing. Mm-hmm. Um, though sometimes it can feel like you've like after a day, yeah. you can feel like well, I take a lot of naps, <laughs> yeah. but I, you know, keep in mind, I also don't have children. So yeah, <laughs> that yeah. makes it easier. It does. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's hard interior work. And like, you have to be willing to sort of sit there, uh, especially on days where it isn't going so well, you just have to kind mm-hmm. of grit it out. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been really good at that trying. I'm fin- I'm trying to finish one right now, but I'm just like, is this ever going to end? I'm at that point <laughs> yeah. where like, I'm revising again. Am I really revising again? <laughs> but you just gotta, you know, you, you don't want to rush it. I think in my earlier career, I was in a bigger hurry, Yeah, which seems sort of natural in retrospect. And I'm trying to resist that impulse. Oh but, yeah. Oh, I really want it to be a prodigy. Yeah. I really Who want doesn't? it to be. It's good work if you can get it. Exactly. Well, is it? I mean, I think it's really hard. It would be really hard in a way. If this, if what's happening to me this week had happened to me when I was 24, I think I don't know how I would have handled it. Yeah. I mean, it would have been great in a lot of ways, but also it meant too much to me. I mean, it means a lot to me right now, but I have the ability to know that I would keep writing novels whether or not this had happened. Right. It's not that this happened is incredible, but it's not actually the point. Yeah. The point is I hope they buy my next book cause I want to write my next book. Yeah. You know, it's the doing of it. It's the actual making of the thing. That's the most fun. Yeah. And not having to like work in an office and wear pantyhose. It's right. <laughs> like really important. That's, really the that's been a driving bargain. force in my life <laughs> to not have to wear pantyhose. Yeah. Um, so you talk about how tutoring these kids led to a breakthrough, mm. gave you a sense of empathy, got you outside of yourself and led to a, this big success with your book. Um, do you plan on continuing to do something of that nature to keep it going? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, is that how instructive was that lesson? Like how, how deeply ingrained is it in how you plan to conduct your life going forward? Cause yeah. you know, your husband's a surgeon, you've had some success with, with the book. Like you might not need to go tutor kids, but like, is it something that you feel like feeds your creative life? Yeah. So I've been, I want to clarify my husband is a surgeon, but he's a surgical resident. Oh, okay. Well, he's so, on his way. He's on his way. He's on his way. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I married a medical student. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you're right though. It's, it's yeah, it's, I have more options now. Um, I have not been working for the past, like, year or so because we, I moved and I, so I had to quit that job and whatever. Um, and I've been working on a new book. So I've been just writing every day and I do really miss being out there. The problem is finding the right balance because when, when I was tutoring, I was so involved. I gave, I got so involved with it that it sort of became my top priority. Right. Although the good thing about tutoring and one reason why I took that job was that it started at 2 PM. So 2 PM to 10 PM. That meant I had the whole morning to write. Um, but, uh, yeah, I do miss, I miss that interaction and I would love to do more teaching. It's just, yeah, it's like, it's just interesting because like you say, you don't want to overcommit because Mm -hmm. then your energies get drained. And I think that like, it can be really easy to think like, Oh, I just love to have a life where the only thing I really have to do professionally every day is sit down and write. Oh Yeah. That's kind of, that's that, a fantasy, but, but maybe, maybe that's not necessarily healthy. Like mm-hmm. I've thought of that. Like I spend a lot of time back here. I'm working, I'm doing this, I'm doing other things. And it's like every once in a while, it'd be good to like go out and kind of take a people 
bath. You know, like people bath. But you, know, you want like it to be limited somehow. Yeah, like somehow you got you to gotta have a way, yeah. you know, because again, it's about finding that balance. The good thing about tutoring as opposed to classroom teaching is that you don't have to grade and oh. you don't have to plan assignments. So you're there tutoring when you're there and then you're done. That's which, a good point. Cause grading is, is the worst part grading, of teaching. Grading is the worst part of life. Yeah. Like there's nothing worse than grading. A big stack of papers. <laughs> it ruins your life. Just essays. Like, and this it sits there if, for yeah, weeks. Yeah, right. Follows you home. And then I always get, I get way too into it and I, I write so many comments. I mean, I like start line editing. I, you can ask any of my students, I just go crazy and they don't care. They look at it for two seconds yeah, and right. they go, what's the grade? And then I'm like personally hurt. Like, don't you want to know what I said about your metaphor? I spent two two? and a half hours deconstructing your essay. (laughs) They're like, I didn't spend that much time writing it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, but it can take, it can take over, but it's, yeah, you've got to find a way to be in the world and out of the world. Right. It's it's no easy feat. Yeah. Uh, But but it's smart of you. It's smart of you. Cause like this book sold when, like, when did you, when did you sell it to Random House? So this book sold in February, 2014. Okay. And so now it's what? It's just early 2017. So it took a while. It took a while. Did you do a lot of editing after acquisition? Yes. You did? Yes. Okay. So, and you did editing, I'm I'm assuming with your agent too. Like Uh, my agent, I, we did one quick round. So uh I, I signed with her in, in December and she sold it a month, about a month later, a month and a week later. And what was that? And what was that moment like? When she sold it. Yeah. How did you find out? Oh, after all this time, four novels in in the drawer. I mean, you've been through it, you know, like you've, you've paid your dues. And and then then... it takes months to find an agent and then you're waiting. I mean, it's so slow. Everything in the book world is so slow. My, my friends who work in like corporate America don't understand this. No. And then like, (laughs) Like... (laughs) and if the people don't buy the book, then they remainder it and the publisher buys it. I mean, the the whole thing is crazy. I know. I know. But like, I'll say, well, I sent the query out last month and I'm still waiting for someone to respond. And they'll say, well, you should just write them an email and (laughs) tell them that they need to hurry it up. No, it's not the way it works. Not the way it works. Um, yeah, no, it's kind of a funny story. So I was, um, we'd gone out with the book on a, she went out with it on a Monday. And then on a Wednesday, I was about to go to work in Mill Valley and I was actually getting a manicure, which I almost never do, but I was sitting it's very there on Mill Valley, isn't well, it? <laughs> actually, it's become very Mill uh, yeah, Valley. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of Silicon Valley money there now. I'm not opposed to nail care. I like oh, that. It's fun sometimes. You yeah. Know? I'll get a pedicure. I've talked about this on the show before. You will? Every like once a quarter. I'm a, I think it's okay to take care of your feet. You're on your feet all the time. They're wrapped up in shoes. Like take care of yourself. Oh, good for you. Like I, I, there's no shame in that. Good for you. Like their dis- feet are disgusting. Take care of them. <laughs> <laughs> have them professionally tended to. Like, I don't understand why this would not be like something that's absolutely like it's as no- it should be as normal as brushing your teeth. Like, oh, I love that argument. Yeah. I need to tell that to my husband. I'm going to, he yeah. thinks it's really weird. I'm going to start a movement. <laughs> Do it. I'll join you. <laughs> um, anyway, I, uh, was sitting in the manicure chair. This is important because I was by myself in a public place and my hands were in the like little bowls of water. Uh-huh. So I, I was kind of like trapped. <laughs> Couldn't answer your phone. <laughs> well, I had my, because I knew the book was out. So okay. I had my phone out, which I normally wouldn't, but yeah, that's, that's, you're really into your phone when you know your book is out. Like, you know, yeah. where, you know, where oh, your yeah. phone is at all times. Exactly. And most of the time I hate my phone and I don't ever want to call anyone back. Just 
no, don't call me. Don't leave. Just send a text and I'll read it like next week. And yeah. Anyway, so I had my phone out and I saw that it was my agent calling. And so I like took one hand out of the bowl of water and like <laughs> clicked to low. And she said, uh, I won't say the exact dollar amounts, but she said, you know, so my agent's very like Who's your agent? seasoned Susan Gollum. Okay. So she represents Jonathan Franzen and yeah. a lot of big name people. So she's like not easily How did impressed. you get her? Slush pile. Wow. You just sent in email mm-hmm. and she read it. She read it. She reads her slush pile. Isn't that amazing? Good for her. I know. Good for her. She's, She's about like, to get some more slush. now. <laughs> hey, send it. If you're good, especially. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but all the good, good writers never think they're good. We always, you know, you always think like, Oh no, actually I'm terrible. Yeah. I've, I was having that thought this morning. Yeah. What the fuck am I doing? <laughs> right. You're supposed to have that. If you don't have that, then you're delusional. Okay. Good. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, so she said, well, you know, so we've had an offer from such and such house, a big house, and I've turned it down, you know, and it, she told me how much it was for, and it was for like more than I'd ever imagined getting. Uh, I mean, I would have published this book. I would have published it for free, to be honest. Yeah. You, know? like you want to publish it? Oh my God. You want to read it? You <laughs> no, want to pay you. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you, you don't care. You just want someone to yeah. notice you in the universe. Right. Right. So she said, and I've turned it down. And I was just sitting there like, ah, 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 you know? <laughs> like what, what, what? Just like, I just think we're going to get some more offers. So I'll let you know. And so, you know, then I just said to everyone in the nail salon, oh my God, so-and-so wants to publish my book. <laughs> and everyone was like, oh. <laughs> Aren't you that cheerleader? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, weirdo. But you must have been like, were you, I mean, I guess you have faith in your agent and you feel that no, she, I was, uh, were you, were you like, wait, you turned it down? Like, or were you like, okay, I'll trust your business judgment because that's your ball game. And do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, that's an odd, that's an odd piece of information to get. We got a great offer. Yeah. I turned it down. I know. And now we just think that we're going to get more offers. Like, wouldn't you not turn that offer down and like uh, try to leverage it to get other offers? Although but, she ended up doing that. Okay. Um, I, you have to, this is why I like getting an agent is like marrying somebody. You have to trust them implicitly. Yeah. And I didn't know her that well at that point, but I just had a sense every conversation we had, she understood the book immediately. Uh, there were other agents who, you know, they liked the book, but they were like, well, maybe we should make it YA. Maybe you should make a happy ending. Maybe you should take out, there's like a big tragedy that happens in the first chapter. And they're like, maybe you should take that out. Yeah. You know, they're just it's like small notes. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> but Susan actually just completely got it. And she helped me improve what, you know, what I was trying to do, but I just trusted her. Uh, of course I was totally in shock. I mean, I think I, you know, I was crying and I was like, uh, like, I can't believe this is really happening. Like, this is really happening. This yeah. is not some like weird dream that I've been clinging to. Um, and then I called my husband and he was at the hospital and, um, he's in surgery on speakerphone yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, my husband is really, really, uh, like even keeled like to a fault sometimes as one would want from their surgeon. You don't want to, oh, yeah. you don't he's want a jittery, you don't want a jittery, you don't want no. me cutting you. <laughs> you don't want me cutting you. Oh my God. You definitely don't want me cutting you. Yeah. Novel, novelist surgeon. 
No, I know. That'd be a disaster. No, no, he's very steady. And but he was like, I was like, oh my god, we got this great offer on the book. Like, can you believe this? It's, like, it's happening. And he's like, well, well, yeah. I mean, you're you know, you're very talented. I thought this. I thought this would happen. Like, no, <laughs> you're supposed to be screaming and crying and saying, I can't believe it. But he was just totally, yeah, well, you know, you kind of um, need that though. Studying influence. Oh, it's amazing for me Yeah, as a, to be a writer and have someone like that. I'm going to call life. him. And when my book goes out, I'm just, I, call I, him. I'll have him on speed dial. Oh, I'll tell you <laughs> when the New York times did a review yesterday. I know. I saw that. And Congratulations. It was a very nice review. Yeah. And I didn't know it was coming and I was. Uh, driving home and then uh, my husband called me and he said, so, Oh, there's something in the New York times about you. I was just, I Googled you and I saw this and I was like, what is this? It's a review. Um, yeah, I think so. Is it good? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, yeah. And I was just like, <laughs> I said, does it, does it say, you have to be more clear. Just like, give me the adjectives. Which adjectives do they use? Yeah. I said, I said, does it say like, don't, please don't buy this horrible book. <laughs> and he said, well, it doesn't use those words. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he, he has a bad track record with these moments. But, or he, a good but he doesn't, but he doesn't get emotionally no. out of whack, which like no. is good because you know, when you're the one who's kind of roiling with it, you know, you need somebody who's there and oh, just, yeah. And it's not, man. it's not just with writing, it's with life. It's with life. Like emotionally out of whack. That's just, me. That's logical. And you have a logical husband. Yes. Logical, yes. pragmatic. Yes. But anyway, the day that I, so the day that I found that out, um, I then immediately had to go to work and do SAT tutoring. The day you found out that the book, that the, that the offer, offer had been, been made, turned down. Yeah. Like I was on my way to, I stopped to get a manicure and then I was going to work. So I drove to work and this kid was there waiting and he needed to do SAT with me and he was having trouble with his reading section. So I, you know, had to, sit, you know, I sat down and I was teaching him the strategies for SAT reading <laughs> and it, and I was just, my whole body was like buzzing and I was kind of freaking out. And I think I wrote something on like a post-it and gave it to my boss because I'm good friends with them, uh, my bosses. And they were, you know, kind of looking at me through the window of the little room I was in, like, you know, yeah, right. making faces at me. I mean, it was it was pretty wild, but it was actually exactly what I needed at that moment. Was oh, to just a go welcome to... distraction, focus on someone else. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then anyway, so then when I got to do some phone um, interviews with the different houses that were interested and I talked to a random house and they had three editors on the phone, um, which was unusual. And they had all these ideas for the book, you know, they, they complimented the book, but then they said, you know, and, oh, we, we really like see what you're trying to do and we could do work on this and you could do that. And that was so exciting to me because that's what you, you just always want someone else to be that invested in your work. Yeah. But like, yes. And I think that that's awesome. But it also like they must've had good ideas that you thought were exciting too, right? Yes. Yes. I mean, the people on the phone were Susan Camel, who's you know publisher of Random House, Noah Eaker, who's my primary editor there and um, David Ebershoff, who's a very well-known editor there. Wow. Not anymore. He just quit to be it because he's a novelist too. I don't know how that's possible, but, yeah. um, so they are very smart people Yeah. and they had, you know, great ideas and just, just wanted to keep pushing the book in the direction that I wanted it to go in. Um, so, but you know, not every writer, some writers bristle at the, like any kind of editorial intrusion. I think there, there are certain people temperamentally 
who are kind of like reflexively, they, they will push back or they, they get very fixated on their own vision or they have a very certain vision. Mm -hmm. Not every writer would be receptive. I think, I think probably the majority would, especially if you're talking to high level editors at a major publishing house. But, um, that's it. That's interesting that you were so excited by the prospect of having to do more work on it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And then later, uh, well, you know, at the time I was like, Oh, this will be easy, you know? And then later, of course it's yeah. <laughs> really hard. It's heavy lifting. Yeah. Um, but it's also, yeah, but also the ideas that like they made sense to me, they felt right. Right. You know, like I was saying other people had made suggestions, like maybe you should have a happy ending or at the end of the book or whatever. Um, you know, spoiler alert, it's not, a, it's not a feel good. Um, and I just felt wrong. So I said, absolutely not. Or people had said things, well, why don't you write a chapter from the point of view of one of the parents? And I said, absolutely not. I'm not interested in that. I don't know what that experience is. No. Um, so it wasn't just that they were giving me ideas. It was that their ideas made sense to me. Right. And they were trying to make your book a, a better version of itself rather than trying to make your book something that, that you didn't feel it actually was. Yeah. And the other thing about them, which was great was that the conversation was mostly about the writing and with other houses, it was about the writing, but it was a lot of focus on the marketing mm. angle. And I was like, I don't, this is kind of weird that we're talking about marketing at this point. Um, what's going to be most important to these, to this publisher, the work and getting the best possible book out there or, you know, cause the book is very hooky in kind of obvious ways. It has cyberbullying and, you know, Facebook and Instagram and all these, all these like hot button topics. Um, and so that would be easy to exploit, but that wasn't the point. Uh, so that kind of acquisition where you're talking to the publisher of random house and mm -hmm. three people are on the phone and multiple publishers, like that's the dream scenario. Mm -hmm. You were aware of that as it was happening. Yeah. Like when you send a book out, it's rare that that would, that it would unfold in that way. I know that. And once, like, like, I guess like the question I always have as a writer is that internally, these publishers probably like they get excited about a book. They think they can really sell it. They think it's a really good, you know, really strong piece of work and they want to get behind it. I'm always curious, like they, once they've made that decision, they really go all in. They know it's a competitive market for the book. So they, they, they're sort of courting you. They want you, they want to win the, win the book. They do, right? I didn't think of it that way at the time. Well, I mean, they want to get it, but they want to make sure their competitors don't. Yeah. So that's a win-lose proposition, right? You either get it or you don't. And once they've done that, and once they've made the investment and they've paid like the bigger advance, um, then I guess like they, they spend more time on the, on things like marketing, even though that's mm -hmm. not necessarily primary. It's a, it's a big, it's a part of it. It sure is. Especially yeah. in a, in a world like this, where there's so many things competing for people's attention, like it's nice when they have a plan, especially at this point. Oh yeah. No, I'm really, ex I've been really excited to do marketing. I told them the first time I met with my publicist, I said, you know, like you're talking to someone who's like the writing equivalent of a little girl with like singing into her toothbrush for her whole life and then going on an American Idol. Right. Like I've been practicing, like, what would I say at a reading? I've been going to readings. What will and... I say when I'm sitting in some guy's garage talking on a podcast? <laughs> yeah. This, well, this very this moment. This is the dream you had as a child. <laughs> well, I was going to say Terry Gross, but <laughs> you are better. I mean, this is great. It's amazing. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, well, no, I have been the hoping for this. Like, how do they, cause mm -hmm. like, this is like, and you have a person who's dedicated to you. 
I'm curious to know what yeah. the experience is like for an author who has that kind of acquisition happen for them. Like uh-huh. how, how does the publisher treat you? How do the marketing people treat you? Oh, like, yeah. You know, cause like the fact that people are getting on the phone with you in the first place is, is I know. unique. Well, so for the first, you know, long portion of working on the book, it was sort of just me and, and my editor, Noah and Susan Camel, um, just working very closely on the book. And we, uh, you know, I actually added, there's a teacher character in the book, um, named Molly who comes to the school for, she, she's from Fresno, which is a less, you know, prosperous area of California. And she comes to the school and she's sort of dazzled by the kids and she decides that she's going to be like the cool teacher, (laughs) which, you know, we've all been there. Uh, she's going to be the one who like, who gets it. And then she's going to like save them by giving them copies of Jane Eyre. Um, and she's very, obviously very naive and she has a lot of learning to do over the course of the book. So she was, we added, I added her after the acquisition. Oh, really? Um, that's interesting. So that's a big piece. Uh, yeah. And it actually now feels to me crazy that she was never not part of the book yeah. I mean, that she was ever not part of the book, but, um, yeah. well, but it also solves the problem of having an adult perspective, mm-hmm. which I think maybe like the, the idea of having a chapter from a parent's perspective was, this, you know, is obviously a step too far for you, but by having a teacher in there, and having that character in there, maybe. Well, obviously, it's a relationship that I understand a lot better—the teacher-student relationship. Right. I've been—I've taught, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kids, um, so it was much more natural for me, and it's less of an oppositional um, relationship. And also, I mean, I'm just not as interested—you know—you can't control necessarily what you're interested in as a writer. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like you get obsessed with certain things, and the idea of following someone's mom around—I just wasn't. <laughs> No offense to moms. It just wasn't what I knew or wanted to write about. So yeah, but to have a young teacher who sort of Molly is like, if I, if I were like really naive and young and followed all my worst inclinations as a teacher, like maybe I might've been like Molly. Um, so she's sort of like embarrassing for me a little bit. (laughs) She feels, she's like a little too close to home. Yeah. She, I feel very vulnerable about her. Um, but yeah, we, I, you know, I added her in, so she's every other chapter is Molly. So that's why it took so long. Um, so there was a long editorial process and we got that down. And then, um, uh, my editor was very encouraging and said, you know, we're all really excited. The word excited comes up a lot. See, but this is so interesting because <laughs> we're all really excited. No, but the common, not like the common, um, refrain seems to be that editors don't want to make an acquisition of a book that requires significant work. Yeah. So to, to make an acquisition, not only to make an acquisition, to make a big acquisition, yeah. especially for literary fiction and to then invest the time in really digging in and making editorial, ch- like significant editorial changes. That seems to kind of buck the trend or at least I know. Like some well, that's popular what I was saying. They're all about the writing. That's it. Um, and they, but why, why do you think they were so excited about it? Well, I mean, I think that book was in good enough shape that it could have been published without right. that. It wasn't like a, a messy, crazy manuscript. It was a polished manuscript. But what do you think? Like, I guess I'm, I guess I'm trying to ask, like, what do you think? What did, what did they see in the book? And like, what is this? What is the appeal? Do you know what I'm saying? Is yeah. It, like, do you have an idea, a sense of your own work's appeal? Uh, I mean, I've been reading reviews, so I'm starting to see what <laughs> people like, think. Oh, so a... this is what I did. <laughs> um, I think, well, I think it's a topic that a lot of people are interested in right now you know, what's going on with teenagers and what's going on with our culture. Teenagers reflect our own culture back to ourselves a lot. I think, um, like, it's really interesting to me that Melania Trump 
has taken a stand against cyberbullying among teenagers. I mean, what an what an irony. Given considering who her, her husband is, yeah. I mean, good for her. Take a stand against it. I, that's great. I mean, but yeah. it doesn't mean much to me. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, well, it, they just I have a hard time taking anything seriously. I mean, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to give her some credit. I don't know yeah. her. She probably has great intentions, but it's it's like, oh, this is a problem that teenagers have. Well, I think this is a problem we all have. I think, yeah, because your husband's a maniac. And and it upsets us when we see teenagers doing what we all do. We think, well, but they are supposed to be nice to each other. They're all supposed to be friends. Well, they're growing up in a culture that we have made. Right. And they're reflecting it back to us. And I mean, to, to be adolescent in the age of social media, I think has got to make it harder. I, I, I cannot imagine... I mean, yeah, it's easier to like, uh, get in touch with somebody or like flirt with a girl or a boy. If you can just like text them or whatever, or, like send, them, send a fa- them, send them nude photos. Oh yeah. <laughs> you can send them a nude. makes it a lot easier, <laughs> but I no, but I mean, but that's, that's obviously fraught, you know, and like yeah. you have this digital record and you have all this, uh, you know, all this ability, like a lot of the, uh, empowerment that I think people feel on social media to say things that they would never have the courage to say in person. Um, you know, obviously that's got to manifest a lot in with adolescence, you know, where you can be mean in ways that you would never be mean in the hallway when you're like on the comment board on somebody's Facebook wall or whatever it is, you know? Yeah, exactly. Did I just sound like like an out of touch, like on the comment wall on the Facebook board? (laughs) Oh, I'm already out of touch because I haven't been tutoring for like for a little while. Yeah. So I'm sure they're on something else. Like there's some other platform that I, I don't even know. I, I don't I've never heard of it yet. And they're all on there. I don't know. I mean, I know you can't control and like, I'm a, I'm not a big believer in, uh, forbidding because like all it does is create like a heightened desire. Like mm-hmm. if you just, oh, sure. but I'm really not a fan of my daughter having uh social media or smartphone. Like I want to keep that stuff away from my kids as long as possible. I think that's wise. Like, I think hold out as long as you can. I'm gonna, and I'm, I mean, I might be sort of the dick dad who's like, no, you Good. can't, you can't have a phone. Like uh, it's just gonna, you're just gonna rot your brain. Read a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Read a book. I mean, you know, well, um, I will say though, I think, um, people ask me a lot now, like how to parent, <laughs> like how to parent their teenagers, which I'm not a parent. I don't know. Um, but I think if you raise your kids, with a solid understanding of who they are, what their values are and how they want to be in the world. That goes a long way. Yeah. Um, so just be there. And I mean, just, just being there in general. Um, yeah. I like, cause the thing is they're, they're like, and I think your book speaks to this. There are a lot of parents in this world that provide their kids, uh, nominally with every opportunity, yeah. like the luxury vehicle and the prep school and the tutoring, the tutoring, but like, they're really actually not there emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not, they're not available, you know, yeah, sometimes they're not. Yeah. And that absence, um, can negate all the material, uh, largesse in the world. So I mean, I just think, I think the core of it is just like, hang out with your kid Yeah. and be available to them. Pay attention to what they're doing. Don't be an asshole. Yeah. Right. And also (laughs) that's my, that's my theory on parenting. Don't be an asshole. I like that. (laughs) And also like, by the way, like you own the cell phone. Yeah. Parents. Speaking of cell phone, it just fell out of my pocket. <laughs> Do we have to start over? No, what happens now? No, I don't know, but that yeah. freaks me out. But I mean, you, you can take it away if you want to. Like, it's up to you right. and it's sort of your responsibility. 
um, having said all that, I think it's also really important to tell kids, like remind them how public it is because to kids posting on social media is, it's just not a big deal. It's like the same as just saying something to your friend on campus. You know, I would see kids sitting around at computers, having conversations with each other and typing to each other on Facebook. So it's all immediate to them and it's just all part of their world. It's just not a deal. And so I know some teachers have done these, you know, projects where they have kids like try to share a post and show them how far it will travel in a certain amount of time. And I think that's good because I, like when I post something on Twitter, for example, I think a lot about it. I think about who might read it. I think like, you know, how is someone so going to take this? I mean, because I, I didn't grow up with it. And so it's still a little bit foreign to me. But for them, it's so naturally part of their world that they don't necessarily go through that, that process of, of vetting. Plus they're, they're 16. Out. Yeah. You're goofing around. Uh, well, when I'm say when I was 16, I was so uptight and I was always convinced that like the worst thing was going to happen to me. Like an after school special where like, you know, the girl gets pregnant, even though like she didn't take her pants off, like <laughs> whatever. <laughs> like, I was like, that's definitely going to happen to me. <laughs> like, you know, the kids like die in a car crash and, oh, that's me. You know, I was, I was, uh, really uptight, but, um, so I think I, I was more, I, I was, I was, I don't know if I was that uptight, but I was definitely like among my friends there. I was always the one who was kind of the paranoid. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I was like, you got to bury, I remember one time I was in college and was on a road trip and we were sort of like just camping like right outside of our car in Palo Alto. <laughs> Oh God. Was that allowed in Palo Alto? No, that's the thing. And so I'm like, you know what? People are like sleep. Like we were like hippies and like sleeping on top of the car. And I'm like, you guys like, give me the weed. We're going to bury it. (laughs) They're like, we're not burying the weed. I'm like, I don't want to be, I don't want to, I don't want the cops to come stir, you know, like search our car. Like, and so I made everybody and I buried it. And like, I would have done that. I was going to been right with you. I was like, let's bury the weed. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. I was that person too. And I had a lot of friends who were like, party popular people and yeah. i would sort of be there like there's a character in the book named david chu yeah. who's my favorite character oh yes and the most i i feel the most connected to him i feel like he has um, these interactions with his parents and he's just these feeling of this feeling of trying to live up to expectations and he's kind of neurotic and um there's a part where there's a party and he's like in the background trying to like clean up the cups. He's like, it's not at his house, but he's just going around trying to clean up, you know, yeah. this impossibly impossible situation for him. That that would have been me. Yeah. Just Wasn't trying to like worried about the cops. And... You know what I think? I think it's uh, being a writer, right? You have a vivid imagination That's it. and you can take things to their worst possible conclusion right? Cause that's your job as a writer. It's like how, if this kept going in the direction that it's going, <laughs> what would vector. happen? Yeah. <laughs> right. You'd be in like a Mexican prison somehow because of the weed that you didn't Never bury. get into college. Everything's going to, you're going to have a record. I remember thinking all those yeah, thoughts. Yes. Like, um, and plus I lived like you lived in Marin County. I, w- I would imagine the cops were friendlier than the cops in like central Indiana. Uh, they had nothing like the cops where I, where I were from, like had a very antagonistic relationship with the high school kids. Was it the same? Yes. It was. Maybe that's just always the <laughs> well, case. Add in the g- case that they have nothing. I mean, not to diss the cops in Mill Valley, but they don't have a lot to do. Well, that's the same where I lived. You yeah. Know? And so it was like, they were just hungry for like a, a chase or something. You know? Yeah. And Mill Valley is a place like there's another character, Damon Flintoff in the book. He, 
there's scenes of him just kind of walking around Mill Valley and what he's thinking. He has like a running sort of di- a dialogue or monologue. And um, he what is, he's thinking most of the time is like, nobody wants me anywhere. You know, like if you're a kind of burly, like kind of wannabe gangster looking 16 year old who smokes cigarettes or whatever, nobody wants you sitting outside the nice Starbucks in Mill Valley. Right. <laughs> you know, nobody wants you really anywhere. They want you to kind of go in your house and your, preferably your bedroom and like close the door. <laughs> Just get out of sight. Yeah. And then like go to school and then go right back home. Um, like the tutoring center where I worked, kids would just hang out there, even if they didn't have sessions, because it was one of the few places where they could find just, an ashtray, just be, Yeah, I mean, we didn't let them know, <laughs> but we didn't care if they swore, if they swore or if they, I mean, we weren't trying to police them and they felt comfortable and it, it, it's hard to find a place in a town like Mill Valley. It's hard to find a place to feel comfortable when you're that age. Yeah. It's hard it's, to find a place to feel comfortable when you're at that age period, especially yeah. like, you know, you're trying to, you're starting to kind of. I mean, all of those behaviors, like just to use smoking as an example, drinking, you know, you're trying on adult behaviors and, um, you're kind of, you're still a kid, mm-hmm. but you're, you're starting to bridge the divide between kid and adult or whatever. It's the very beginning of that process. And yeah, that puts you in an awkward phase. I guess I'm just basically defining adolescence, but <laughs> I don't know, you know, it, it's, it's a, very confusing, it's very naturally yeah, confusing and weird. And, um, I think too, like when you see somebody who's really like at the height of adolescence engaging in that stuff, like after the fact, I find it kind of sweet and heartbreaking. And it's like, you, co- you sort of blush for them. Cause like, it's a blushing of recognition, you yeah. know, not like, Oh, you're embarrassing, but like, Oh, I remember that. Like, yeah, you just, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> that was a lot of my experience as a tutor was like, Oh, I remember how that felt. You mm-hmm. know, I remember that discomfort that just feeling like you know, like I had like acne when I was a teenager and that feeling of like, just, I didn't want anyone to look at my face, you know? <laughs> and is that you're just always thinking about how other people are seeing you. Yeah. Uh, and, th- and then you have a crush. I remember like having crushes and like the bell would ring and like class would end. And then like you go into the hall and it would be like, am I going to pass? Am I going to pass? <laughs> remember like, am I going to pass her in the hall? And then it's like, if I pass her, like, should I say hi? <laughs> then it's like the, Hey, you know, like that thing. Did you ever do I, that? I didn't have as much of that. I was sort of like not interested until junior year. <laughs> See, that was my problem. And then- <laughs> I was saying hey to that girl repeatedly. She was like, ah. <laughs> I remember being invited to a boy's house and we watched um, the Blues Brothers. That which is an aphrodisiac I right did there. not understand. He's, he's I thought it was the deal. very weird. It didn't go very well. Look um, at John Belushi. Yeah. But then yeah. I, had a bo- I got a boyfriend when I was... Um, a junior and he was another newspaper editor uh, and we were together for like five years and it was a very, one of the most functional relationships I've had in my life. Actually. <laughs> a, I got lucky. It's a good lucky. newspaper man. He was a good friend, you know? So are you going to mind, um, like, are you done with teenage protagonists or teenage characters? Do you feel like that's your like milieu now? Do you have more to say about this or the book that you're working on now? Is it mining, um, similar terrain, at least like, you know, demographically or age wise, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think thematically it is. So it's like a coming of age story about an old Hollywood actress, but it's set in the present day, which is another, another weird concept. I keep, I don't know why I can't just write like a straightforward, like jumping around in time. (laughs) Um, it's like, if she were born today, if she lived now, what would her life be like? So it's like her life story, but if it happened today, so 
it's weird. I can see the look on your face. You're like, huh? Yeah, that's the look I usually get. But I'm determined. That only makes me want to do it more when people don't get it. But is it? I mean, no. But is it like a, yeah, it's, a, it's, an I mean, old it, Hollywood actress from like for real from like the old days, or is it yeah. like an, about a Hollywood actress who's a big star in modern times? It's a it's a real. It's based on a real person from okay. the. Um, from, you know, she, her heyday was like the thirties and forties. I don't know why I'm jumping here. It's Lana Turner. Okay. Um, like Schwab's drugstore. Yeah. Yeah. She was discovered when she was 15. Wow. And then pretty instantly became a sex symbol. She became the sweater girl. She was put in this movie. A sweater girl. That's what they called her. The sweater girl. Okay. She was 15. She got put in this movie. She wore a tight sweater. She was a, I played a high school student who gets murdered. She, she puts on a tight sweater and she walks down the street and it's this long exterior shot of her walking down the street and she's kind of like shimmying. And this clip was just, it just made her famous instantly. And that was what she was known for. Isn't that amazing? And she tells the story of going to the movie theater with her mother to see the premiere and being just shocked because she didn't realize that she looked like that. And all the men in the theater are hooting and hollering and... Anyway, I'm just like, it's very... got to make a 15 year old girl feel good when like, you know, people's dads. Are... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, that there's some overlap with, again, being a young person and, and, and because my Lana lives now, this clip is, is put on a blog. It's made into it like a gif and it's put on a blog and it's, it's like becomes a meme, like all over the internet and people uh... replaying it. And what would that do to your sense of self as you're trying to develop in the world. Yeah. The image takes over the reality. So do, is Random House publishing? Like, is it a two book deal, blah, blah, blah? Or like, do you not know? Well, this is why I'm being sort of dodgy about talking about it. It's not sold yet. It's not. Okay. My but, agent has it and we're hoping that that Random House She's going to, she's going to turn down multiple offers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're just hoping it always goes back to, oh, I just hope someone wants to read this. Yeah. Right. Like it's all this happens and still I have a writing group I meet with every Sunday online. And I'm still just like, I hope they like it, you know? Yeah. Cause you don't, especially like, you know, at this stage of the game where maybe your agent has read it, or maybe your husband has read it, or maybe your writing group, you know, you have a small subset of people, but it's largely just you and you don't know. It's like, what do I got? Yeah. That's where I am right now. It's like, what do I have? I mean, I've had a couple of people look at it, but then you, they sort of tell you nice things and you're like, they're just saying that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, I believe exactly. <laughs> exactly. They feel bad for that. me. This is, they feel pity. This is pity. <laughs> <laughs> or like, well, this is why you need, you need a group of very honest friends. Yeah. Like my writing group is really honest. And like, our my little... friends are all lying bastards. Yeah. No, you need meaner friends. That's right. Yeah. If anyone out there wants to be my mean friend, <laughs> you can maybe you can join my group. Let me ask you, uh, <laughs> let me ask you a question. Uh, and then I'll let you go. Cause, uh, I know you got to probably get home, but, um, I was reading a review of your book and you know, something that the, the author of the review of the review said thematically, um, about your book resonated with me about how, um, the American dream might not be all that it's cracked up to be. And like one of the epigraphs in your book, is it epigraph? Am I using it? Yeah. I keep looking that up to like make it's sure it's not I'm epigram. Not using... I always get them confused, yeah, but I know. you know, at the front of the book, there are three quotes. One of which is a quote from a, uh, a lady from Marin County in 1978, I believe Yeah, saying like, you know, the pot of, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow isn't, isn't the pot at the end of the rainbow is not money. It's not money. I know because I have it. I know because I have it. So that's obviously on your mind. Mm -hmm. Um, I find that, uh, it seems like a lot of times writers figure out what the theme of their book is 
through writing it. Mm-hmm. Like the book sort of tells you what, oh, you're like, oh, this is what I'm preoccupied by. Yeah. Was that the case for you? Or did you have like a big critique of the American dream or of all this privilege that sort of like started you? Because sometimes writers do. Oh. I think there are authors who have like a big idea or a big question or a big theme first. Mm-hmm. And then they write from that. And then I think most people just sort of like finger paint in the dark and yeah. like, don't know what the fuck they're doing. And then eventually they're like, Oh yeah. I, you know, I guess this is what I'm obsessed with. Um, I, for a long time, I just called the book, the teenager project. And I still call it that in my own head. Um, that was the only goal I had. I tend to start with character. Mm. Um, like even the Lana Turner thing, I'm interested in her. I'm interested in what would it be like to be that person. And with the teenagers, I just had a, I had like a list of characters of types, sort of like the breakfast club, um, that I wanted to dive into. And then I just started moving down the list and writing each one's story. And then I like worked on connecting them all. So no, I, I didn't have a big theme. Okay. I mean, I knew obviously the issue of growing up privileged is very close to my heart. I mean, that's my experience and, um, the, the pitfalls of that. I mean, it's wonderful in so many ways, but it's also hard in ways that I think often is not understood. It's, it's sort of like, well, you have no right to complain. Yeah. Um, but you, like you can't be upset. You can't be hurt. You can't be human or fragile because look at you, you have it all. Right. Like, well, you drive a Mercedes, so you must be happy. Well, when you're 16 driving a Mercedes in a town where everyone else drives a Mercedes is not going to make you happy. Like what will make you happy is if your parents sit down and hang out with you and like you and talk to you and ask you questions. And if you have good friends and you know, if you're interested in something, that's what makes you happy, you know, and I don't know why, but you know, but that, that, that's the critique. And I mean, it is, I, the reason I bring it up is because I share that same feeling and I, I think it's really fundamental and something that needs to shift. Um, I think it's like, um, it's like an illness, you Mm -hmm. know, this, I've been thinking a lot about, um, success. I guess it's always been kind of a preoccupation. Like when you have to write, when when you try to write a novel, you're sort of on your own. Mm -hmm. It's like you're rowing the boat on your own and trying to figure it out. Nobody can really do it for you. Mm -hmm. You know, you, yes, you can have support in certain ways and you can have writing groups, but like you got to do the thing. And so I think that naturally, um, made me, and, and I'm this way to this day, seek out information on like, well, how do I, how do I have, uh, like the best mental energy and how can I get myself into a good space to write? And like, mm-hmm. how and I read literary biographies? I do this show. Mm-hmm. Like, how did you do it? You know, I'm, I'm yeah. always trying to like figure out. And there are certain people who, um, you know, make their living and can make quite a good living mm-hmm. as sort of these, um, you know, self-helper people or spiritual guru people. And you know, a all lot these, of those in Marin. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, but people who publish books or they're giving Ted talks or they're whatever the case may be. And yeah. it's, I've been calling it like the prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm. It's like a church, mm-hmm. you know, Ted and Ted talks. That's like, it has a lot in common with a mega church aesthetically. Oh, that's true. I didn't with like about the, that. You know, the headset microphone and the stadium seating and yeah. the music, you know, and it's like, Oh wow. And like, so I'm, I'm thinking about that as an extension of like the quote unquote American dream mm-hmm. and the pursuit of happiness and how we would be well advised to, to really, you know, to stand back and, and reevaluate kind of constantly. Like, well, what does happiness really mean? What really makes people happy? Yeah. And, uh, it sounds qu- sort of uh, corny and cliche to say it, but it's not the car or the house or the, 
you know, but the bitch of it is that the people who like to tell you that are the people who have the car. I know. And the house. It's really, I know that. And, but, but I mean, I say that as somebody who has a car and a house. Yeah. Um, but it's like, uh, there, there have been times where, you know, I'm like reading some celebrity profile. They're like, the money doesn't make you happy, man. And I'm like, great. Will you give that money to me? Cause I really want to know what you know. I want to have, cause if it doesn't make yeah. you happy, then you don't need it. I know. And then I'll take it and I'll learn how it doesn't make me happy. First Someone hand. told me a quote by like Jim Carrey of all people who said, he think he said like, I wish everyone could be rich and famous for like a week so that they would know that it's not the answer. Right. You know, um, I think one of the best privileges uh, growing up privileged aside from the fact that I've had a safety net my whole life. And I have to acknowledge that obviously things are much harder for people who grow up poor. And I mean, I'm not making a comparison, but one of the great privileges of growing up privileged has been that I always knew that money wasn't the answer Yeah, because I had it and I had comforts and I had the beautiful town. I mean, my, you know, my family isn't like the Trump family, but I had all that. And I knew that I still wasn't happy you know, yeah. I wasn't in the sense of being deeply satisfied with my life. It wasn't what made me happy. My happiest moments were with my friends or, or when my parents were really connecting with me or when I was writing or when I was reading. And so that was why I was able to say, I'm going to make my life about reading and writing. I mean, when I sold this book, I was making, I mean, I don't know, $40,000 a year or something. I mean, I was I had no savings. I was, you know, I was limping along Yeah. and you know, those of us who've been adjuncting, like we know you're kind of just limping along. Adjuncting pays worse than like, I've done the math. It pays worse than a lot of very low paying jobs. Yeah, I totally, absolutely. And there's no benefits. I mean, yeah. I never had like real health benefits until I got married. And now it's like, I go to the doctor like every week just because I can't, you know, it's like, wow, I'm going to have surgery. This is amazing. I used to, you know, used to be this whole calculation, whether I could afford to go to the doctor. Uh, so, um, but I was happy because I was working on, by what, the way, they're going to tear down Obamacare. So like, don't get, oh, don't get your hopes up. Well, I mean, yeah. no doctors for anybody who can't, can't afford <laughs> yeah, it. No more doctors. That's a great idea. <laughs> Thank God the Republicans are here for uh, all of us. Um, Don't get me but started. anyway, I thought I knew I could have, you know, gotten the job that gave me a big paycheck and gotten the nice apartment in San Francisco and, um, you know, gone out to nice restaurants every night and like had that lifestyle, but I knew that it wasn't going to make me happy because of my experience growing up. And that kind of gave me, I don't know if you call it courage or naivete or <laughs> recklessness or whatever it yeah. was to say, what matters to me more than anything is getting to be a writer. And so everything else is going to be second place to that hmm. because I, I just, I just knew that I was most myself when I was writing and that just allowed me to be in the world. Um, and, and I needed it. So I wish that everyone could have the experience of having all the stuff they think they want so that they understand that it's, it's really not after a certain baseline point, it's really not the answer. Well, yeah, I've read, there's like studies that say like after 75 K a year, you know, it's whatever number it is adjusted right. for inflation, but it's like after that doesn't like the happiness difference isn't like that, um, that much bigger. Right. You know, it's right. like once you've hit that baseline, everything after that, it's like, Oh, it's fun. But it's like, you can only take so many trips. You can only... Yeah drive your car around so much. And what are you spending the most of your time doing working? So I think you should care about what you're doing. 
if you care about like my dad's in advertising, you know, he has an advertising business. He's done very well and he loves it and he's fantastic at it and he makes money. He does well. And it's a job that for me, I could, I mean, I've worked for him a lot, but I like, I just couldn't do it as my everyday profession because I don't care about it. So it's not really saying that, well, writing novels is like more worthy or more important than working in advertising. It's just that for me, it's what makes my life feel rich and honestly bearable. Yeah. I'm a very sensitive person. I think a lot of writers and artists, you know, that's what we are. We feel things very deeply and it's sort of the way that we manage to be in the world is through by reading and writing. So I just always knew that that had to be the centerpiece of my life. And whenever I would work with a teenager, I was always looking for that little glimmer of what's your thing. Like, what's that thing that you just sincerely love and has nothing to do with impressing someone else or doing what your parents want? They're like, like pot, <laughs> well, Facebook. <laughs> now, Brad, what have we learned about labeling and making assumptions? <laughs> right. I, 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 everyone has a thing. Everyone does. Everyone has. A I thing. don't think that everyone necessarily knows what that thing is or if that thing is necessarily translatable to a profession. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's I, I, what I guess I'm saying is that like your level of self-knowledge and the fact that you, you know, had this privileged upbringing that allowed you to kind of cut through the delusion at the heart of the American dream or whatever, like you saw, you had it, you know, it didn't make you happy. That is, that's a blessing. Mm -hmm. Um, but you also sort of knew yourself from a young age. You knew you wanted to be a writer. That's never been like, even with all the, uh, failed attempts at writing books earlier, did you ever think of quitting? No, never even occurred to you. No, I mean, I don't, I, I like to tell the story about when I was working at the tutoring center and I had finished after the cheerleader book, I wrote another novel and I had sent that to an agent who had been interested in my work in the past. And I was like, this is going to be the one, you know? <laughs> And I was really wanting it to be the one because I was living with my parents and <laughs> you're like, please God, let <laughs> please, it be the one yeah, please, your, par God. your parents are like emailing or like, take it, yeah. please. <laughs> God, please get out of this house already. Uh, we're just, we're tired of you. Like you're, you're 30, like move on. Um, <laughs> uh, it came back with a very curt email that was like, no, this is not going to work. Mm. Not like not interested. And I remember getting the email and it was the morning before I was going to work. I was in my parents' house. My mom was there. I started crying. I said to my mom, like this agent doesn't want the book. It's not going to be the one. Like she says, it's not hooky enough or whatever. I just, I just don't know what to do. Like, I just don't know what to do. And she's, my mom is like sweet. You've met my mom. Yeah. I know your mom. Very sweet and very former third grade teacher, like very calming and gentle. But she just said, well, I guess you'll write another one. Oh, I was, I was hoping she just like dropped an F-bomb or something. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. She just very calm. Well, I guess you'll write another one. See, that's good parenting though. Great. Yeah, I was so annoyed at the time. Yeah. I wanted her to say, no, my life is over. And like indulge your self-pity and, <laughs> yeah. you know, join the pity party, but she didn't. Uh, no, she's just like, yeah, well you know, you just keep trying. And that's really what you do. That's what, that's it. And that's, that's my big piece of advice. Just keep trying. Yeah. How do you work? Do you, I mean, I, I could keep asking you questions all day, but I think people might be wondering, you know, like you said that you had your, you know, your tutoring job from two in the afternoon until 10 at night. So mm -hmm. you're a morning writer. Yeah. You write every day. No, I write 
well, like when I'm working on a project five days a week, like it's a job. Okay. Um, that's I, a big thing for you. I yeah. Mean, like, you know, like as a, as an approach, like this is my yeah. job, I'm going to go to well, work. Also, you know, my dad's a writer cause he, you know, he's an advertising, right? Copywriter. Yeah. And I worked for him for many years, like on contract or whatever, but it, 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 it being edited by your father and having to be on deadline to your father. <laughs> will like really beat any hesitation. (laughs) Yeah. You cannot be precious. Yeah. It's like, this is a job. This is how my family gets fed. Like this is a skill that I'm going to put to use. So I, I've never been super precious about it, but, um, I sort of have to trick myself into it and, and be very disciplined and have a strong routine when I'm in a project. So here's what I do. I get up around eight or eight 30 or nine. (laughs) And I, you definitely don't have kids. I know. I mean, someday this will all be blown apart. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, and I have to have a Coke first thing in the morning, to, like Coca-Cola to oh. just wake up. Okay. I don't drink coffee. Okay. Um, but I won't buy Coke for the house because I'll have too much of it. But there's Coke. I have some right over there. <laughs> well, give you a fix on the way out the door. You can give me a few cans as I leave. <laughs> um, so, so, but this is part of my strategy. There, there's a Panera uh, cafe. Have you ever been to Panera? Panera bread? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I've been writing at Panera's forever. By the way, that's maybe my favorite thing that I've learned about you <laughs> in the entirety of this conversation. Really? Was your novel written in a Panera bread? Absolutely. And, they, and Panera is thanked in the book. Fantastic. Um, I've been writing, I've written at Panera's in all these different cities that I've lived in. Why? You just, you okay, like it. Well, it's here's comfortable. the thing. They got Wi-Fi. What, what, I guess they don't have Wi-Fi. Well, they do, but it sucks. Good. Yeah. So you, um, okay. So I get up, I, I, I look as like unappealing as possible. Cause I don't want anyone to talk to me. And I, <laughs> I I'm the kind of, I think I smile too much and people feel like they want to chat. Yeah. 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 No, I'm like grungy and I'm like, I'm like scowling. Um, and I have like my computer, my laptop, I go to Panera because they have Coke there. Uh-huh. So it's like, Oh, I don't want to write. You don't uh. want, you don't want a coffee. You don't I like coffee. coffee. You like Coke. I like Coke. I've never had coffee ever. I mean, no, I've had like a cup. I, I hate it. Or tea. Tea's all right. But Coke is like, it's, it's cold. It. It's fizzy. It's bracing. That's what you want. I, I know it's not right. <laughs> it's okay. I'm married to a doctor. Yeah, I understand right. that it's not. Everybody has a vice, but I feel like it, if, because it keeps my career going, it's okay. Yeah. But I only have one a day. Well, shit. You're fine. Okay. Anyway. Good. Thank you. I need to be reassured about that. So Panera bread. So they have Coke. So I get up, I go there, I get my Coke, I get maybe a snack or whatever, but then then I sit in the booth and see Panera. It's not like Starbucks. No one's in a hurry at Panera and Starbucks. People are coming in and out and everyone's nervous and there's not really much table space. Panera, there are these big booths, like they're really comfy. All the people who work there are so nice and they, you know, they know me by name <laughs> and they're like, like there she is again. You know, hey, how are you today? And what are you working on now? And the managers are really of the one I go to now is just super friendly. They let me sit there for like four hours at a time and it, it's relaxed. You know, it's just senior citizens and like moms with toddlers and I, I don't know It's there's white noise. Yeah. Uh, which is really important for me. You don't, you don't wear headphones or anything. Um, well, I do wear headphones when I'm getting, when I get into it, I put a song on repeat until, and it like puts me into a trance. Yeah. I guess. Well, no, that's interesting that you say that because I've been reading, uh, lately I was reading something. I can never remember what it was cause it was probably online, but it was about, it was all about 
the effectiveness of listening to listening to music on repeat to induce a trance state. Yeah. And it, cause when I wrote oh. my, when I wrote my first book, I listened to like the same flaming lips song, like on a repeat yeah. over and I, 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 Oh yeah. And it was just, and I like, it would just become this wash of noise, but it also like had like the emotional quality that I, like I felt like I was going for in the book. So it like put yeah. me, put me into like the mind state I would need to like reaccess the book. Right. And, and you have certain songs for certain books. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I mean, like it was the same one and it's like, it was, it was like, I was like, this is sort of weird. I'm listening <laughs> to the same song for like six hours at a stretch. Like, yeah, no, that's but, what I do. But it actually does. It has that, like, it's, I guess it does have that effect. It gets you into like a trance. Yeah. And deep concentration. There was like an Arctic Monkeys song um, called Fluorescent Adolescent that it's just a really loud, like, rock song. It's like a teenage band. And um, yeah, I would just listen to that for hours on repeat. And it just would get me into that teenager (laughs) headspace, you know, where I'd listen to, um, there's a song called Super Rich Kids by um, Frank Ocean and Earl Sweatshirt that's um rap and that, that would get me into the vibe for a certain chapter You're like, i'm gonna then... start cyberbullying someone <laughs> <laughs> i'm ready <laughs> i'm gonna write something don't cool. mess with me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's it i mean i listen to music I, I i have a bargain with myself i have to write a thousand words or I sit there for four hours one or the other um, one or the other that's nice yeah because it's then motivating it is but it also like if you don't get the thousand words you can feel like an asshole like i've done that before i'm like i didn't get my thousand words yeah. I'm like you feel like the day's a failure yeah even though you tried like yeah you know right, so sometimes you can't get it you can't or you, the, you get it but it's horrible or sometimes you get two thousand yeah on like a really good day and you're yeah. like you know so it balances out but you but know. then if i didn't get it and i sat there for four hours like at least i've tried i know i've put in a solid try <laughs> but, but it isn't an interesting i just talked to uh roxane gay uh for oh wow uh, like this last episode and she and i were talking about the amount of time that she works i was asking her similar questions and we got around to like this four hour time frame yeah what is it about four hours I that seems I... to be like the sweet spot yeah for the amount of time that someone can do like really deep immersive creative work yeah and then once you pass that four hour mark, it, you just start to go to shit. Yeah. And then I always have to take a nap after all the cokes in the world going, are not going to resuscitate yeah. this. Going back to the theme of not having kids. I go home and take a nap after I'm done with my four hours. If I've been there for the whole four. Yeah. It's such a deep concentr- state of deep concentration. And I think it takes like, it probably takes at least in the first hour just to get into it. Yeah. Right. Just yeah. depending on how consistently you've been working on the novel. I don't know how people like write novels sporadically. I don't either. It it's has like, to be continual. You gotta, you gotta be all in. Yeah. So you need some time to fidget around. And I always have books with me that I'll read little portions of. Eat um, a loaf of Panera bread. Just... Eat a loaf of bread. I love bread. <laughs> yeah, me yeah. too. It's the best. <laughs> I have a great diet. I feel like they should, they should, they uh, should, there should be like some sort of sponsorship opportunities with you and Coca-Cola and Panera bread. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I could be on commercials or something. Just, yeah. Like yeah. you sitting in a booth, just car, car <laughs> just and writing a masterpiece. Being a weirdo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, listen, I am very happy for you. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Um, best of luck. I'm sure you're going off on tour. Like, right. You're going to do some dates. Uh, I don't know. I'm doing, um, book passage in Marin County, um, on January 20th. Conquering hero. That's my big hometown. Yeah. My parents will be there. You can come meet Dave and Susie if you want. That'll be great. (laughs) That'll be fun though. It will be really fun. Um, well, I'm thrilled for you. I wish you well. Um, on, you know, the tour or going to, going up to Marin and I wish you well on the new book. Thank you. And uh, I wish you, um, you know, many successful Panera bread writing sessions. (laughs) That's the best thing you could say. Thank you so much for having me. 
Okay, everybody, if you enjoyed that episode, if you enjoy this program generally, you can support it over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can also support the show by writing a review over at iTunes. That helps the cause. That helps new listeners find the program. So go over to iTunes and write a review if you are so inclined. That was Lindsay Lee Johnson. Her debut novel is called The Most Dangerous Place on Earth out there now from Random House. You can find her online at lindsayleejohnson.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle is at J. She's on Pinterest. The Most Dangerous Place on Earth debut novel. Red Hot. Available now from Random House. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to email me if you have something to say. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget this podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. It's available wherever you get your apps. Go get the app. It's free. Everything will be there waiting for you. The most recent 50 episodes are always free. And then if you want to get at the archives, if you want all the episodes, almost 450 episodes at this point, you just uh, sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. Sign up for a premium safely and securely right there within the app. It's as cheap as 75 cents a month. Gets you everything. 75 cents a month gets you everything, every single episode, everywhere you go, anywhere you go, whenever you want, at your fingertips. Great deal. What a bargain. So yeah, it's uh, it's time to go submit to market. Very excited. Genuinely excited. It's been a long road. Let's find out what what's what's gonna happen. I'm ready to find out. And you know, I think Lindsay and I talked about this a little bit. I think at this age, after uh, many years doing this, you're sort of less invested at the level of identity, which is healthy. Plus, I'm just exhausted. <laughs> I'm too tired to get wound up. You know, you know, like when I was 28, invested, you know, invested at the level of identity. That's one thing. Nowadays, in order for me to get uh, that wound up, I've got to drink a lot of caffeine. It's just not possible. So, give it a whirl. What's interesting to me, too, is that you really never know. I mean, I guess maybe some books have such, like, glowing commercial appeal. You can just see it, and they're so good. You know? Maybe there's a few of those where it's just very obvious. But more often than not, there's a question mark. You don't know. Take it out there and see how people react to it. Or not. trying to decide if I tell my agent like I think if I were really cool I would just be like just call me if something good happens otherwise I don't want to know like why should I busy myself entertaining like reading through rejections like getting that kind of information why don't you just, just call me if something good happens I'll be working on my next book that would be the cool way to do it Maybe I'll do that. Or maybe I'll be like, tell me everything. (laughs) I want to know everything they say. 
But I feel like agents, you know, if the person says something negative, like super negative, I think agents probably filter that stuff. Protect you. So that'll be a decision that I have to make in the next week or two. I'll keep you posted. I'm sure you're hanging on my every word. It's very dramatic. All right, you guys. Wait, what? What?